This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. see, high-tech Buddhist here with the Apple Mac. So, uh, yes, this evening's talk is called The Great Love, and um, it's from the Vimalakirti Nidesha, and it is my text, really. It's the text I go back to again and again and again. I never tire of it. And um, I first came across it, uh, I've just been looking here, in 1979. It's when Sangha my teacher, gave eight lectures on this text in London, and uh, I was there at them, at the eight lectures, one each week. Um, and this is a book which is made of those lectures, a transcription of those lectures, and if you're interested in the text, if, if, I've, if I manage to interest you in the text this evening, then definitely buy this book, because it's very, very good. I'll put it on the shrine there. So, yeah, so ever since 1979, I've been very inspired by the text. Um, I've come to think that the text is actually a work of art. Not, not, it's not really a um, didactic text. Uh, it does have quite a lot of teachings in it, but it also has a, a kind of an overall narrative going through it. And uh, I actually think it's a work of art. Why do I think that? Because it has universal themes and uh, it keeps repaying repetition, going back again and again. It's like a Beethoven symphony or... Um, Bach's um, Preludes and Fugues. You can just keep going back to them and they're fresh every time you listen to them. And it's the same with this text, actually. It's just beautiful text. Um, very deep, very wide. And it's a Mahayana text. Maha, uh, Mahayana is the second great phase of Buddhism. You've got the early Buddhism, which later became known as the Hinayana, which is an unfortunate word because it's pejorative. Um, Mahayana, Maha means great, the great way to enlightenment. But Maha also has an element of wisdom about it, so it also means that which understands emptiness. And if you don't understand what I'm talking about there, don't worry, we'll come back to that later. Oh dear, I thought I'd fix this yesterday. It keeps uh, cutting out, I'll have to keep messing. Um, Yes. So Mahayana, and the followers of the Mahayana, people who try to practice Mahayana, are known as Bodhisattvas. Sattva being Bodhi enlightenment, beings who are bent on gaining enlightenment. But not for themselves only, but for the sake of all. So there's a very strong compassionate element, strong other-regarding element to Mahayana practice. So the Vimalakirti in Adesha would be a sutra, but it can't be a sutra because a sutra is the Buddha's teachings. And the Buddha does do a little bit of teaching right at the beginning and right at the end, but most of it in the middle is Vimalakirti. It's all about Vimalakirti, this weird, strange character called Vimalakirti. So it cannot be a sutra. Sometimes you, you see the text is called the Vimalakirti in Adesha Sutra, but it shouldn't be. It should just be called the Vimalakirti Nidesha. Nidesha means the teaching. So it's the teaching of Vimalakirti. Vimalakirti is a very, very strange character, but we're not going to go into that this evening. Um, haven't got time to do everything. Um, and it would be a Vipulya Sutra, if it was a Sutra. Uh, a vi Vipulya means extended. It means it's long. Now, I haven't got an actual book to show you. It's not actually very long as regards... Buddhist sutras, some of them are very, very long, and this is only kind of medium length. Um, it's like a, a short novel kind of length, a couple of hundred pages. Very, very readable, at least I find it very readable. 
I was talking to someone the other day and they said they tried it and they couldn't get on with it at all. So it's not readable to everybody. Uh, and that's, I think, because when you go back to these texts, they are very, very different from the kind of literature we modern Westerners are used to. So you have to take that into account. You can't read it as if it were a novel. It won't satisfy you in that kind of way. It's not that kind of literature. It's a different kind of literature, and you have to get used to this different kind of literature. It takes work, uh, and it's good to have a commentary, and that's why this book's very good. It helps you into it. And you have to put up with repetition. They love repetition. Um, I often say that uh, a Mahayana Sutra, and in this too, um, if they can say what can be said in one sentence in 20 sentences, they'll say it in 20 sentences. <laughs> um, even 100 sentences with some of those texts. This one is 20, second, 20 sentences, not 100. And... Uh, you see, the, these texts are not really teaching manuals. It's not like when you go back to the very early texts in the Pali Canon, where you open it, and the Buddha gives a very coherent teaching. There is repetition there, um, but it's, you know, shortish, a few pages long usually. Sometimes they're only a page long, but they're teachings that you can understand and take away and try to put into practice. This text doesn't really do that at all. Um, in fact... It's obvious as you go through the text that the writers of the text, whoever they were, we don't know who wrote this text, whether it was one person or a band of people, we just don't know. Um, but they've taken it for granted that you've read your Pali canon. You know all that. Because they keep on referring to various teachings, but they don't say what they are. So they'll refer to the Eightfold Path and the Threefold Way and the Six Sense Bases and all that stuff. Um, and they don't explain it all. So it's understood that you've done all that work beforehand. So you only really study these texts when you've studied the early ones. It's all based on that. Yeah. So um, it can be a bit frustrating sometimes when you're reading these texts. And it mentions the 37 Bodhipakidamas and the seven um, wings of enlightenment. And you think, well, what are they? You know, you don't know them and you start losing interest because uh, you don't know what they're talking about and they're not explaining it to you because you should know. Yeah. So you have to take that for granted too. So what is the purpose of these kinds of texts? The purpose is, I think, not to really teach you anything. It's to put you into a different state of mind. My friend Nagapriya who's a very good friend of mine who's written a couple of books that you might know, uh, Exploring Karma and Rebirth, very, very popular book, and uh, a not-so-popular book, unfortunately, Visions of Mahayana, very good book, though. But he, he often talks about um, transformative language. So um, when you're reading these texts, the point of them is that they're transforming you if you allow them to. So it's not a text that you read to learn something that you then put into practice later is a spiritual practice in itself to read the text. So when you read it or when you heard it read, it's wonderful if you can hear it being read to you when you're in a very meditative state. We've been doing this in Manchester, aren't you awake? We've been doing this in Manchester on, the, uh, on Monday evenings. <laughs> on Monday evenings, we've been going through the text, but the first thing we do is... Sorry about that. <laughs> the first thing we do is we get into a meditative state and then we read it. And uh, sometimes um, if we die, Amani and I take different parts. And sometimes we have another person. We just read the text and people just listen and they... And what I say to them is, you'll get fed up after a while. Because, you know, as I say, what could be said in one sentence, he says in 20. And so he says it over and over again in different ways. And, you know, to our modern sensibilities, this is like really inefficient, isn't it? You know, texting and all that. Don't even put proper words in text, do you? It's like... And it's a really short, efficient. And so this is completely opposite. And so we're not used to it. So we, we say, come on, you know, I've heard that now. I've got it, I've got it. Let's move on to another topic, please. But it doesn't let you. It stays, you, it keeps you with the topic. And what I think what's happening is, what should happen is, your conceptual mind is working. You know, you're listening and you're thinking, yeah, I understand that. 
Then he says it again. OK, got it. Yep, yep, yep. And then the third one. Yeah, yeah, I got that the first time, thanks. And it keeps on at you, it keeps on at you until your conceptual mind goes, oh, I've had enough. And it gives up. Yep. And then you start learning. Then you start allowing yourself to be transformed. That's the practice. To just listen, listen, listen. And you'll want to reject it. You'll, you'll get irritated. You'll get bored. Um, you'll, wanna, you'll just want to move on. Can we fast forward, please? But it won't let you because it wants to transform you now in the moment. That's the point of them. And now I've got to type my password in again. This is really annoying, isn't it? I thought I did this last night. Okay, so um, that's enough of an introduction, I think. And we're going to uh, do one small t part of the text, only a page long. And it's from chapter 7. And chapter 7 is called The Goddess. We don't actually get to meet the goddess. She comes a bit later on. Uh, this is uh, what we're going to listen to is a question and answer between the great Bodhisattva Manjushri and Vimalakirti. Uh, Manjushri you would have come across before. He's the young 16-year-old crown prince who is the Bodhisattva of wisdom. He embodies the wisdom of enlightenment. Yep. And he's talking to Vimalakirti, but he's asking Vimalakirti questions. So wisdom, the great wisdom Bodhisattva, is asking questions of Vimalakirti, which says a lot, I think, about Vimalakirti. Um, you've had Maitreya Bandhu up here recently, haven't you? And he gave a fantastic talk at the Manchester Buddhist Centre about a month ago. Really, really very good talk about exactly this topic. I asked him to talk about this. Very, very different talk than the one I'm going to give this evening. But one of the things he said, which I thought was very, very valuable, is Vimalakirti is a strange character. He's a mystery. He's very mysterious. So he said, what's happening here is wisdom is asking mystery the questions. It's not a good way of putting it. Yeah? Wisdom is asking mystery questions. So he asked him two questions. Very short questions and fairly long answers. Fairly long answers. And I'm going to read you most of it. I am going to miss bits out, actually. Not because they're too long, but because some of them are very technical. And they're to do with, you need to understand this Pali Canon stuff from previously. And some of it will just go over your heads, probably, because it's a bit technical. So I've missed those out because I want you to have maximum impact and if you hear things that you don't quite understand, it's very easy to get disengaged. So I want you to engage. I want you to have maximum impact. And I'm using Robert Thurman's translation. It was Robert Thurman's translation that inspired Sangraksha to give these lectures in the first place. When it first came out, he was very, very inspired by it. So he gave these lectures. Robert Thurman, he's still alive, lives in New York, I believe, American. Very good translator and uh, scholar of... Um, Tibetan mainly Buddhism, written a number of books. And I've used mainly his translation, but um, I've, I've got a couple of other translations. And the thing about Robert Thurman, although he's very, very good, he's also a bit eccentric in some of his translations. So I've got rid of some of the eccentricities. It's actually very presumptuous of me to do that, isn't it? But, yeah. Okay. <laughs> So it begins, thereupon Manjushri, the crown prince, why don't we just really listen now, eh? really close eyes and just let it wash over you, let it happen to you. Thereupon Manjushri, <coughs> the crown prince, addressed the Lichavi Vimalakirti. Good sir, how should a bodhisattva regard all living beings? Vimalakirti replied, Manjushri, a bodhisattva should regard all living beings as a wise man regards the reflection of the moon in water, or as magicians regard men created by magic. He or she should regard them as being like a face in a mirror, like the water of a mirage, like the sound of an echo like a mass of clouds in the sky, like the previous moment of a ball of foam. 
like the appearance and disappearance of a bubble of water. Like the core of a banana tree, like a flash of lightning. Like a sprout from a rotten seed. Like a tortoise hair coat. Like the fun of games for one who wishes to die. Like the perception of colour in one blind from birth. Like the track of a bird in the sky. Like the erection of a eunuch. Like the pregnancy of a barren woman. Like dream visions seen after waking. Like fire burning without fuel. Okay, that's the question and that's the answer. As you will have noticed, we haven't got to the great love yet. That's the second question. But we're going to stay with this first answer for just a little while. Interesting question though, isn't it? How should a bodhisattva regard all living beings? Someone who's practicing the Dharma. How should we see? What attitude should we have to other living beings and you get this answer which is remarkable isn't it now those of you who are Buddhist and know about this kind of thing know that there's a doctrine in there yeah forget the doctrine for a minute if you can forget your knowledge and listen as if afresh because there's no doctrine here it's all images it's poetry yeah so that's maybe the first thing that we take from this text Perhaps we can see each other poetically. Yeah. That's a nice way of understanding it, isn't it? Let's take the first one. A bodhisattva should regard all living beings as a wise man regards the reflection of the moon in water. Friday night, coming from Oslo to Stockholm on the train. Big problem, lying down. We stopped at Shill, couldn't go any further, waited two hours. Eventually, they got it together and they took the train a new route, a route that a passenger train has never, ever done before, ever. <laughs> yeah. We went on the goods line, the goods line. So you've never been on this line. Me and Hridayamani are the only people in this room who've been on this line, unless you've been a goods train driver, which you probably haven't been. So we went on this line. And it was 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night, and the sun was just on the horizon, perfectly clear blue sky, and the moon was on the other side. And we passed lakes, which were perfectly still, and we saw the moon reflected in the lakes. And we're wise men, <laughs> so we knew that that in the lake was not the moon. We knew that was the moon, and that was a reflection. So that's how a wise man sees, yeah? You know this is a reflection, and that is the moon, yeah? So what does this tell us about seeing people? Yeah. How should a bodhisattva, how does that help us to see each other? Yeah. First of all, we need to be careful of appearances, I suppose. Yeah, that appears to be the moon. And if you did this, you know, if you... I do this sometimes when I've got time and no one's around. I do this, like that, when there's a reflection. So I can see the moon reflected there and the moon up there. And now, that looks like the reflection and that looks like the moon. You should try it sometime. So, it really does look like the moon. But it's not the moon. It's a reflection of the moon. So, what we see is the reflection of something else. Does that make sense to anybody? We're not actually... What we think we see is not what's there. Yeah? Yeah? We're seeing a reflection. If you think the reflection of the moon is the moon, then you're deluded. Yeah? So most of the time when we... Our understanding of people, our seeing of people is a kind of delusion. We're not really seeing the person, we're seeing some kind of reflection. Yeah. Hopefully as we go through these, we'll get a 
picture of what uh, Vimalakirti mystery is trying to tell us. A bodhisattva should regard all living beings as magicians regard men created by magic. This is a very common image used in all Buddhist texts. It must have been very common in those days, 2,000 years ago. You had magicians going around the villages and they would magic a person into being. Yeah? And there's this magic person there. And uh, most people would think that really was a person. It's a bit like, have you seen any of those films where, um, cowboy film, and they're watching one of the early moving films. Have you seen this? And uh, there's some Indians chasing the, the good person. The, no, no, the good person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> whoops. Uh, the, the, the cowboy. And um, he's probably a bad person. Uh, they're chasing him with bows and arrows. And uh, all the cowboys in the room get out their guns and they start shooting the, the Indians. Have you seen one of those films? Whoa! They start shooting the Indians because they, they really take it for real. Yeah. So... Um, or if you've ever seen a hypnotist working on stage and they hypnotise someone and they say, this is a really beautiful woman here, and they bring a mop. Yeah. They say, this is a really beautiful woman, you can kiss her if you want. And then they end up kissing the mop. Have you ever seen that kind of stage show? <laughs> kissing the mop like this. And um, really getting into it because they're on stage, so they have to look like they're really into it. And it's a mop. And um, so that's not a wise person. But as a, as a magician regards men created by magic, so the magician knows that this man that's been created by magic is not really a man. Yeah? He or she, in the text it's he, but I like to say she as well because bodhisattvas can be either male or female. It's gone again. Should have got you to do this last night. Um, really, Bodhi, I thought I did it. Um, he or she should regard them as being like a face in a mirror. That's similar to the moon on water, so I won't say much more about that. A face in a mirror. So when you look at a face in the mirror, it's not the person's face, it's the reflection again. Like the water of a mirage. That's a lovely one. You know what a mirage is? I used to live in Aden, which is a really hot place, right on the bottom of the Red Sea. And uh, Nearly every time you went in a car on the road, up, up, up in front of you was a mirage. It was so hot. This is a mirage. It really looked like water. And um, this is an interesting image because, in a way, it is water, isn't it? It's not water in that we can't jump into it, we can't drink from it, but it is created by water, I, th I think, isn't it, a mirage? So it's a kind of halfway thing. It's not what you think it is, it won't, not some, it's not what it looks like. And once you're used to mirages, you go, oh, that's a mirage, and you're not fooled. But before you were told that, you could easily be fooled. Yeah? So it's the kind of thing that looks like something you know, but it's not quite that. Like the sound of an echo. Yeah? The sound of an echo. Yeah? Not the sound itself, but the echo. So that's a bit like an oral version of a reflection, isn't it? like a mass of clouds in the sky. Now, this is a different image because they really do exist, don't they? Clouds really do exist. They're not a reflection of anything. They really do exist. But the thing about clouds is, a few days before we were on that uh, train journey, we were in an aeroplane and we went right up into the clouds and we didn't bump into them. Yeah? We didn't go boing. We went right through them because they're insubstantial. You can't hold them. They change from moment to moment. So... People, let's go back to people now, people are like clouds, yeah? They're not fixed, they're insubstantial, yeah? It looks like, you know, especially when you get these really thick cloud masses, it looks like you could hold them and bring them down, but you can't. Your hand would go right through them. So a bodhisattva regards people as being like clouds, yeah? Existing but not substantial. You can't hold them. You can't hold on to them. This is going to look good, look on, look good on this film, isn't it? Um, here's a nice one. Like the previous moment of a ball of foam. The previous moment of a ball of foam. And you know a ball of foam is... No? Ball of foam? 
You got that? Did you get that? Yeah. It's hardly anything, but it's the previous moment of that ball of foam. Yeah. Like the appearance and disappearance of a bubble of water. I meant today to buy one of those bubble things that you blow. Children are absolutely fascinated by these bubbles. Endless fun with bubbles. You, you'll never get fed up with them when you're five years old. On and on and on and on, blowing bubbles. They just love them because they're lovely, beautiful things. And you do that and they just splash and they're gone. So like the appearance and disappearance of a bubble of water. That's how we should try and see people, remember. These aren't just beautiful images. They're how we should try and see people like the appearance and disappearance of a bubble of water. Like the core of a banana tree. A banana tree doesn't have a core. So now we get some, uh, a few little images which are, are funny. To the Indian mind, this would have been really funny. You know, they've been laughing now. The core of a banana tree. Ha ha, it doesn't have a core. <laughs> so it's a bit like that. Um, like a flash of lightning. Dramatic, sudden, really there, isn't it? You really see it, but how long does that last? Less than a second? Shh, gone. A flash of lightning. That's how we should see people. Like a sprout from a rotten seed. You don't get sprouts from rotten seeds. Like a tortoise hair coat. This is the funniest one. They'd have been really laughing at this one. A tortoise hair coat. Yeah. Tortoises don't have hair. Yeah, so they don't have coats. So we should see people like tortoise hair coats. What on earth does that mean? Yeah, what can that possibly mean? Like the fun of games for one who wishes to die. Mm, suddenly we're plunged into something quite serious, aren't we? When you wish to die, you do not want to play games. Yeah, like the fun of games for one who wishes to die. A suicide. Can you imagine them playing a game? It's unimaginable, isn't it? It would not happen. Like the track of a bird in the sky. Beautiful image, isn't it? Because you can kind of track a bird in the sky, can't you? You watch it and it's come from there. You know it's got from But it hasn't actually left a track. So the track, the Buddha was known as the trackless one. You couldn't track him. You couldn't pin him down. So you can't pin a bird down. It's trackless. Like the erection of a eunuch. I looked it up in Swedish. There. It's the same word, isn't it, eunuch? So I don't need to explain to you what that is. Let's move on quickly. <laughs> the erection of a eunuch. Like the pregnancy of a barren woman. Yeah. A barren woman can't conceive. Yeah. Like dream visions after waking. This has to be one of my favourites. Like dream visions after waking. You know that moment you've just woken out and a dream. And you've just got it. You just remember. It's fascinating. It's, what was it? Oh, what did he... What did I say? Uh, you just can't quite get it. It's ungraspable. It's sort of elusive. It, you just can't get it. Yeah. Dream visions after waking. Finally, like a fire burning without fuel. Again, impossible. So, in a way, you've got two or three different ideas here, poetic ideas. Some of them are just silly, humorous. You can't have these things, you know. A, a tortoise hair coat cannot be, yeah. But other than them are very, very beautiful images, aren't they? Lovely images which give you the impression of the beauty of life, but also the fleetingness, the impermanence. So, what is he actually saying here about people? how we should try to view people. Well, at the end, he says, and I didn't read this, so I'm going to read it to you now. Precisely thus, Manjushri, does a bodhisattva who realises ultimate selflessness consider all beings. So there's the clue. There's the doctrine. Selflessness. Yeah. So it begins... What's the question again? Let's go back up. The question is, how should a bodhisattva regard all living beings. How should a bodhisattva regard all be living beings? And then this is, he says, this is how you should, because this is how a bodhisattva who realises ultimate selflessness, that's how he or she really does consider all beings. So all of these 
uh, images are meant to convey in some way the idea that we don't have, nobody has a self. Yeah, that's what it all really means, isn't it? And if you realise selflessness in yourself, that's funny, isn't it? How can you do that? If you realise selflessness here, you also realise that no one else has a self either. Yeah. So this is how the Bodhisattva, who's realised selflessness, sees us. Yeah. So this is the teaching. This is the challenge for us. This is the invitation to try to see each other in this kind of way. Like the moon reflecting on water. Like dream visions after waking. We're ungraspable. We're unknowable. Because we don't have a core. We're like the banana tree that doesn't have a core. Yeah? There's no core to us. There's no inner selfhood that stays the same year in, year out. Yeah? We're ever-changing. We're like the previous moment of a ball of foam. Like the appearance and disappearance of a bubble of water. That's how we are. We don't actually see it like that, do we? Because our impermanence is slow. Yeah? The, a bubble of water comes and goes in a, no time. A flash of lightning, no time. Our flash of lightning lasts maybe, I mean, mine's lasted 60 years now. That's a long flash of lightning, isn't it? It's a long bubble to be hanging around. So because it goes on for so long, we, uh, we're deluded into unconsciously thinking forever. Yeah? That's what happens, because we seem to go on for ages, ages and ages. I seem to be going on for ages and ages and ages, and I seem to have been more or less the same person throughout that time. I'm totally recognisable. I mean, I was here six months ago and then a couple of years before that, and when I came, I recognised many of you, and you recognised me. Yeah, okay. Um, so there's this kind of recognition, there's this continuity and all of this gives us the illusion of permanence, continuation, on and on and on and on. So we have to be reminded that we're impermanent. Yeah? And the way we're reminded about that impermanence is radical impermanence, real impermanence, like a second. That's how we should try to regard each other, because... In a way, we are radically impermanent as well as long-term impermanent. We're long-term impermanent in that we all know we're growing old and we're going to die. We all know that, kind of know it. Kind of know it up here, even if we don't know it down here. But also, we're radically impermanent in that we're changing from moment to moment. We think there's, there is continuity, but there's not identity. Do you see what I mean? So continuity in that I, I remember being me yesterday. I remember that. So you've got that kind of continuity going on. But we mistake that continuity for sameness. Yeah? So because I can have similar thoughts from one day to the next, I identify that as, that's me. I'm this person who has these thoughts over and over and over again, and these feelings over and over and over again. And that keeps on going on. Added to that, the fact that I look more or less the same every day, then that's a very powerful argument for permanence and sameness, isn't it? And we're deluded into believing that. But we're only the same every day because we choose to be. I'm only, I only have those thoughts over and over again because I choose to have them. And I choose to have them because it's easier that way. Yeah. It's easier to be the same me today as I was yesterday. It makes life a lot easier for me and my friends. It's me again. Here I am. I'm the kind of person who has these thoughts and keeps saying these things over and over again. Remember me? It's me. And so um, we all feel safe. Um, but it's very interesting when you get ordained because then you get a new name. That was a long, long time ago now, 35 years ago, 36 years ago, I got this new name. And it's like, really, whoa, I've got this new name. And it really, um, it really kind of... Uh, has an effect on your sense of identity. I'm no longer the person that I was called then. Now I'm this new name. And sometimes I think it'd be good if we got a new name every year. It would kind of loosen us up a bit. It would be more real. It'd be closer to reality because, you know, Viri Bodhi, I mean, 
he's not the same as he was three years ago when I was here. It's a different Viriabodhi now, but I call him Viriabodhi, and that deludes me into thinking he's exactly the same, because his name is spelt exactly the same way. So he, therefore, is exactly the same person. So labels become fixed. They fix us. Yeah. So the fact is that we are changing from moment to moment, but we decide to change by being the same, if you know what I mean. Let's have the same thought again and the same feelings again, over and over again. But we could decide to let all that go. We could decide to let all it go. Have new thoughts, new feelings, new ideas. Do something different. Uh, that's why it's so important to um, go forth. This whole idea of going forth from home into homelessness. There's a literal home, of course, but there's also the home of our habits, the habitual us. And we're invited to leave home. Just leave home. <coughs> Start wandering. Just wander around in new areas. New thoughts, new ideas, new uh, feelings, new you. Every day, a new you. That's what the text is trying to say. I've got to get into here again. So that's the first question, and that's the first answer. So let's move on now to what should be the theme of the talk. Manjushri then asked further, Noble Sir, if... A bodhisattva considers all living beings in such a way, how does she generate the great love toward them? Good question, isn't it? Because if beings don't really exist, how can you love them? Yeah? How can you love a ball of foam, a flash of lightning? Yeah? Very good question. It's the kind of question that we would think, isn't it? And here he's asked the question, and Vimalakirti is about to answer, and it's a long answer. So, ready yourself. Vimalakirti replied, Manjushri, when a bodhisattva considers all living beings in this way, he thinks, just as I have realized the Dharma, so should I teach it to living beings. Thereby, she generates the love that is truly a refuge for all living beings. The love that is peaceful because free of grasping. The love that is not feverish, because free of passions. The love that is impartial throughout the past, present and future. The love that is without conflict, because free of the violence of the passions. The love that is non-dual, because it is involved neither with the external nor with the internal. The love that is imperturbable, because totally ultimate. Thereby, he generates the love that is firm, its high resolve unbreakable, like a diamond. The love that is pure, purified in its intrinsic nature. The love that is even, because its intentions are the same toward all beings equally. The Bodhisattva's love that continuously develops living beings. The Tathagata's love that understands reality. The Buddha's love that causes living beings to awaken from their sleep. The love that is spontaneous because it is fully enlightened spontaneously. The love that is enlightenment because it is of only one taste, the taste of freedom. The love that has no uncalled for affirmation because it is free of attachment and aversion. The love that is great compassion because it infuses the Mahayana with radiance. The love that is never exhausted, because it is born of emptiness and selflessness. The love that is giving, because it bestows the gift of Dharma free of the tight fist of a bad teacher. The love that is morality, because it improves immoral living beings. The love that is patience, because it protects both self and others. The love that is effort, because it takes responsibility for all living beings. The love that is meditation, because it is unaffected by preference. The love that is wisdom, because it causes attainment at the proper time. The love that is skillful means, because it shows the way everywhere. The love that is without falsity, because 
of the purity of its good intentions, the love that is without deviation because it acts from decisive motivation, the love that is high resolve because without passions, the love that is without illusion because it is without artifice, the love that is happiness because it introduces living beings to the happiness of the Buddha. Such, Manjushri, is the great love of a Bodhisattva. I feel actually that I don't really need to say anything about that because it's so obvious. But I will, because this is a talk. Manjushri, when a Bodhisattva considers all living beings in this way, he or she thinks, just as I have realized the Dharma, so should I teach it to living beings. Yeah. So the teaching of the Dharma comes from love. Now I should say something about love, actually. Let's go back to Manjushri's question. If a Bodhisattva considers all living beings in such a way, how does she generate the great love toward them? Maha Maitri. Maitri, metta, Sanskrit, Maitri. You know what metta is, goodwill, loving kindness. Maha Maitri, the great love. So this is really different, it's of a different order. The great love is the love that understands that all beings are without self. It has that kind of wisdom. So it's wisdom love, yeah, emptiness love. So that's what Vimalakirti is now talking about, the great love. And uh, Thurman makes a very good point here, because the word is Maitri, and Maitri is usually translated as goodwill or loving kindness. And he says in his notes, I decided to use the word love. Because in English, I don't know how it is for you in Swedish, but in English, love is a very strong word. Uh, people long for love. They really long for love. They love to be loved. They long to have people that they can love. People long for love. So he kept it there. And what the text does, it, it purifies our understanding of love. Yeah? Any ideas that you've, of love that you've got about it being romantic and sexual and lovely and cosy takes that away from you because he defines it bit by bit, doesn't he? Just as I have realized the Dharma, so should I teach it to living beings. So that's why we teach the Dharma. That's why I teach the Dharma. Um, I teach it because I want other people to understand the Dharma because it is the great thing that can save us, yeah? individually but also the world, I think. Thereby, she generates the love that is truly a refuge for all living beings. Now, refuge, Buddhist word, um, samana. And uh, all living beings, all beings, especially all human beings, but I think it's true of animals as well, but let's stay with humans, need a refuge. What does that mean? We need somewhere to lie our head down. Yeah, We need a bed. We need somewhere to stay. But more than that, we need a life. We need something we can rely on. And usually people rely on things which, from the Buddhist perspective, are in the end unreliable. Yeah? They won't actually hold you completely. So what are the kind of things that we go for refuge to, usually? In Buddhism, they're called false refuges for this reason. Um, love. You know, uh, true love. Um, romantic love. We want a partner so that that person can be our refuge. And to a certain extent, they do act as a refuge. But of course, they can't be a complete refuge because they can't completely hold us. Yeah? They want you to hold them. So they can't completely hold you. And also, they're impermanent. Yeah? They grow old and they die. And also, they might be a bit fickle and they might fall out of love with you after a while and then you're in a big pickle. Um, no longer can you rely on that person. There, you know, so people can't completely be relied on. I'm not saying that you, know, you can't find someone who is reliable in a human kind of way, but they can't, you can't completely rely on them in that kind of way. Another thing we go for refuge, wealth. Wealth. If we have wealth, if we're wealthy, we're safe, aren't we? 
safe from the vicissitudes of the world. False refuge. You've got a whole load of money in the bank and you're relying on it for interest to keep you going. Now, I've got a friend, an ex-girlfriend actually, who uh, has got quite a bit of money in the bank and she was living on the interest of that until the crash. There's no interest anymore. So she's just, her savings are going down and she's going to have to get a job. So that refuge didn't work. Um, if you lived in Cyprus and you got savings, suddenly the government's telling you, we're going to take some of that away from you now. Yeah. So, uh, and say you, say you had money in a bank and it crashed. What happens? In England, you're, if you've got, uh, uh, I can't remember, a certain amount of money, 180, uh, 85,000 85,000 of that much? Okay. If you've got more than that, you've lost it. Yeah. When the bank goes, you've lost that money. So um, wealth doesn't always work. You know, you can, you can be fairly safe, but not completely safe. Um, career. Throw yourself into a career. And uh, for some people, that can be a real, you know, really long-lasting refuge. But eventually, you have to retire from that career. Um, and some people find that very difficult, the end. Um, but also, sometimes you may be taken away from that career. Maybe you get an illness. Um, and it may be that illness prevents you from being able to work. And so suddenly you, you don't have that career. So nothing is completely and utterly reliable. And we want reliability. We need stability. So the Dharma, because it's transcendental, is the only thing that can really give us Complete refuge. Do you mean refuge from suffering? Refuge from insecurity. The possibility that you might lose everything. Yeah. Yeah. True. The, uh, he or she, the Bodhisattva, generates the love that is truly a refuge for all living beings. Everyone wants to be loved, but it's often conditional. I'll love you if you love me back, kind of thing. But the Bodhisattva, what we are trying to do with our lives is love unconditionally, to be a true refuge for people. The love that is peaceful because free of grasping. Yeah? The love that is peaceful because you don't want anything back. No grasping. You just love because you love, not because you want others to love you back. It's quite a high ideal, this, isn't it? The love that is peaceful because free of grasping. The love that is not feverish, hot, because free of passions. It's not passionate love. It's not that, oh, I want you, darling. It's not that kind of love. It's completely different. Completely different. The love that is impartial throughout the past, present, and future. In Buddhism, that's the three times, past, present, and future. The love that is without conflict because free of the violence of the passions. Because the, the passions often lead to violence. Because I want you, I want you to do this for me. And then you don't want to do that for me anymore. And then this is why, you know when you're in uh, a relationship, if you do go into a relationship, as I do sometimes, isn't it funny how you find yourself having these crazy arguments that you'd never have with other people? And you feel... It's so shaming, isn't it? You say crazy things, you know, you really get so angry. And uh, and you'd never do that with people here in the Buddhist centre. You'd be ashamed to be seen arguing that kind of way. Why does that happen? It's because of this kind of love, isn't it? The love that is without conflict because free of the violence of the passions. The love that is non-dual because it is involved neither with the external nor with the intel. It's gone beyond that sense of me and you. The love that goes completely beyond, that bridges that gap between me and you. The love that is imperturbable, unshakable, because totally ultimate. He or she generates the love that is firm. It's high resolve, unbreakable, like a diamond, diamond love. Pure Pure and it's in, in purified in its intrinsic nature. Pure in Buddhism is um, is not only a moral virtue, but it's also metaphysical yeah, or <laughs> philosophical in that 
you purify yourself first of the negative emotions. That's one purity. But then you purify yourself of, of the very idea of your selfhood. So purity uh, points to non-self as well. The love that is even, because its intentions are the same towards all beings equally. The Bodhisattva's love that continuously develops living beings. The Tathagata's love. Tathagata is another word for Buddha. The Tathagata's love that understands reality. The Buddha's love that causes living beings to awaken from their sleep. What is their sleep? It's the sleep of selfhood. You know when you're having a bad dream, you have those dreams, I'm sure you have those dreams where you're being chased. Yeah. But I have them, I seem to always be on railway tracks in a tunnel, being chased by shapeless beings. And I'm really, <gasps> and then I wake up, I wake up, oh, what relief, I've awoken. Oh, it's only a dream, it's only a dream, I'm okay. So, all our troubles are caused by this belief in selfhood, yeah? We suffer so much because we really believe in this selfhood. The Buddha has awoken from that dream, and he's okay now. He's awake. He's like, oh, I've woken up from the dream. I don't have to suffer anymore, being chased, and all that kind of thing. It's okay. There's no self to protect, so I'm fine. But then the Bodhisattva, or the Buddha's compassion, is to see that we're still dreaming. So it's like being in a dormitory full of people going, oh, oh, in their dreams, oh, oh, oh. And you just want to wake them up, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's just a bad dream. Yeah? So that's, yeah. The love that is spontaneous because it's fully enlightened spontaneously. The love that is enlightenment because it's only of one taste, the taste of freedom. The love that has no uncalled-for affirmation, because it's free of attachment and aversion. To be honest, I don't quite know what that means. I've got looked at the three translations, and they all say something a bit different. But the way I kind of interpret it is that very often we feel that we need to be affirmed. This is me. Please affirm me that I actually exist and you like me. You don't need that. Yeah. No uncalled-for affirmation because it is free of attachment and aversion. The love that is great compassion, because it infuses the Mahayana with radiance. Isn't that a beautiful line? I don't really know what it means. It's just so beautiful, isn't it? The love that is great compassion, because it infuses the great way with radiance. Marvellous line. Pure poetry. The love that is never exhausted because it is born of emptiness and selflessness. Because when you don't have a self, you don't get exhausted. It's only the self, the person you think you are, that becomes exhausted. You know, it gets compassion fatigue, don't you? I can't do any more. But when you don't have a self, you don't get exhausted. There's no self to exhaust. So it just goes on and on and on. The love that is giving... And then you get, did you recognize that there's a, there's a list here? Did you recognize the list? Giving, morality, patience. Got it? What is it? Virya. Yep, Virya, effort, meditation, and wisdom. The six paramitas. Yeah, the love that is all of those, the practice. And the seventh paramitar, skillful means. The love that is skillful means because it shows the way everywhere. Skillful means is the ability to adapt teachings to the audience. The love that was out that was out that is without falsity, completely authentic and real, because of the purity of its good intentions. The love that is without deviation because it acts from decisive motivation. The love that is high resolve because it is without passions. The love that is without illusion without illusion, because it is without artifice. I realised when I was reading this, artifice may be a diff difficult word. Artificial, yeah, unreal, yeah. The love that is 
without illusion because it is without artifice. The love that is happiness because it introduces living beings to the happiness of the Buddha. Such Manjushri is the great love of a Bodhisattva. <coughs> so, summarising the two answers, you could say the first answer is people are not fixed, they're not static, they change. They're constantly changing, moment to moment. We're in a constant flux of change. We have no fixed or eternal inner core to us. No Atman. The Indian word is Atman. It's often referred to as soul, but I don't like that. I like to think we have got a soul, but the soul is not a fixed soul. It's not something there. We're changing, or we're, we're, we're capable of change all the way through, not just the external aspects of ourselves, but our very inner being is able to change. This allows us to experience complete and radical transformation. To see people any other way than this is delusion. This is the important point. To see people is in some way fixed. Oh, he's just like that. He'll always be like that. He will never change. That is a delusion. And it is not said from love. Yeah? So these two things are very closely connected. Love and selflessness are the same thing. Yeah? When you have a self, when you believe you have a self, now you're separate. Yeah? Now you've got to try and get across the chasm from you to another person, and that's really hard work. Yeah? You have to go beyond your idea of selfhood, which is separate and fixed. So selflessness is love. That's the first question. That's the first answer. Second answer, in summary, we should look at people with the eyes of love, goodwill, friendliness, kindness. Look with the eyes of love, soft eyes, forgiving eyes, yeah? not craving eyes, not attaching eyes, soft, warm, loving eyes. Because we're not really separate. And because we're not really separate, what we think and say think, we think, say and do, what we think, say and do actually affects other people. We are not separate beings. We live together. So what I think, say and do affects you and vice versa. So we need to bear that in mind because we're connected, closely connected. That's the insight that Buddhism has. We are connected. That's the insight. Love, compassion, kindness is the appropriate emotional response to that insight. You could say the emotional equivalent. Yeah? The insight is selflessness. The emotion is love. Love is closer to reality, closer to the way things are, than hate is. So when you hate someone, you are completely deluded. That's why it hurts so much. When you love in this way, you are full of wisdom and it feels great. Freedom. Buddhism exists to help people wake from their sleep of selfhood, which is often a nightmare. Buddhist centres, like this one, exist for the same reason, only for that reason. And they do this by teaching the Dharma. They also do this by creating the conditions in which people can grow more easily. Grow in knowledge, wisdom, but also in the other positive qualities, generosity, ethics, patience, helpfulness, etc. And Buddhist centers also do this by creating the conditions for people to experience Sangha, spiritual community. Community, communion, with each other. And in this context, this very context that we've got right now, as we sit in a circle and I look at you and I'm getting all your love, this is good, but if you look around now at everybody else and exchange that goodwill, that love, yeah, not romantic love, but metta, 
In this context of Sangha, we are able to experience the love from others towards us, and that awakens the love in ourselves that we can then feel towards others. The love that is not feverish. The love that is peaceful because free of grasping. The love that is, um, that is impartial through the past, present and future. The love that is without conflict because free of the violence of the passions. And in this context, this context, not a thought up context, not an idea, but an actual living reality that we've got here in this room. In this context of shared aspiration and shared love, this enables us to realise, realise not intellectually but really experientially with our whole being in our bones, that we are not separate, that we are connected, interconnected. Then, when we've had that experience, we will experience the greatest happiness, the greatest freedom that is possible for a human being to feel. The great love, Maha Maitri. Then we can be a true refuge for the world. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.